Well, good morning, and uh, congratulations to you guys dedicating your kids. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab it. For those of you who are here uh, in person, you can grab one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. And we're looking at Romans 1, 18 through 32 today. We're in a third week of our series on Paul's letter to the Romans, specifically on the first four chapters of Romans. And this, uh, these first four chapters really focus on this gospel journey back to God. So that is our focus for this first series. We're going to do four different series through the book of Romans, through the letter, Paul's letter to Romans. And this is the first series. We'll break every once in a while to do some other things as well. So today, we're going to be mapping the journey. Last week, we mapped the journey uh, to back to God, the gospel journey, or two weeks ago, gospel journey back to God. This week, we're going to be mapping the journey away from God and uh, why it is that we need the gospel. And so uh, in what um, I, I now am, am referring to as the most inappropriate sermon for a family dedication weekend, uh, <laughs> we will pray. And uh, it just so happens this is the passage we're covering. Uh, We've we got to do a little bit better on that. But anyways, um, so uh, we're going to jump into the Bible in a moment. Uh, first, going to pray prayer of illumination, uh, asking God's Spirit to illumine His Word to us. And this prayer is based on 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we trust in the promises of Your Word. Thank You for the grace and the love of Your Son, Jesus, and the abundant blessings of a life with You. By Your Holy Spirit, guide us and give us understanding as we look to Your Word. Open our eyes to see and open our ears to hear Your truth. Teach us to walk in your ways. Lead us to share your generosity and your grace with the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's hear part of our scripture being read by one of our five ochres. Romans 1, 18 through 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. All right, so the series is about the gospel journey back to God, and as we've been talking about and really developed a couple of weeks ago, the gospel is not this, this narrowed-down story of how we can be saved, but the gospel is something way bigger. It's an abbreviated way of referring to the entire story of God, the entire biblical story. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, 1 through 4. And so the gospel is a story of God seeking to renew his entire creation uh, after humanity, those of us made in God's image, 
uh, and therefore, uh, and given the task of caretaking his creation, we've rejected the creator. And so God designed us to live and love and harmony with him and with each other and even with the creation to cultivate it and to manage the creation. I like the way the British scholar, that British scholar N.T. Wright puts it. Um, he says this, humans were always designed to be central to God's plan to rule his creation. That's part of what it means to be made in God's image. So when humans go wrong, the world as a whole is put out of joint. The gospel is about the restoration of the entire creation. Now, when we fail to find our way back to God, we suffer. And actually, everyone suffers. And we miss out on so much. We miss out on a close relationship with God. We miss out on the kind of community that he's called us to. And we miss out on meaningful service for God in the world. And the most meaningful service is not something that just makes me feel good. The most meaningful service is what I've been made to do, what God has called me to do, serving him and his kingdom. So in Romans, Paul is saying that if we will just acknowledge our culpability, our guilt in ruining his world, and we'll just acknowledge that we have rejected him and we moved away from him, and we will put our faith in Christ, what God has done through Christ, Paul is telling us we can be made right with God. The question is, are we willing to do that? So for the next chapter and a half, for the rest of this chapter, all of chapter two, the, uh, most of chapter three, Paul will relentlessly drive home our guilt. And I mean, he is going to be relentless. Our culpability in breaking our world and what God's response has been. The bad news of God's response as well as the good news of God's response. God, Paul is going to tell us, is angry at me. All right, He's angry at me uh, for what I've done to contribute to the problem. I have no excuse, Paul is going to say. I deserve God's judgment. He wants me to come to that conclusion so that I will turn to his solution, so that I will turn to what he's done. He wants me, he requires to be made right with him that I change my mind and I change my direction, which is what the Bible call repent calls repentance, and that I put my faith in Christ. So this week we're going to get clobbered. Next week we're going to get clobbered by the Apostle Paul. And it may be really hard at certain points to take, um, and you may have all kinds of what about type questions, and hopefully we'll address those questions as we go through this. So let's take a look at what Paul says, how it is that we end up far from God and needing the gospel journey back to God. So he says we find ourselves far from God because number one, we suppress the truth about God. That's what he tells us in this passage. You just heard that section read, but I want you to hear how he drives it home in this passage. So beginning in verse 18, the wrath of God, we'll look at that in just a moment, this anger, it's being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who do what? They suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood 
from what was made. So the people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and animals uh, and birds and animals and reptiles. All right. Let me underline again the point he's making, how we suppress the truth. He says, we are, they, he says, they suppress the truth, humanity suppresses the truth. What may be known about God is plain, but God, because God has made it plain, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen. They are without excuse. They knew God, but instead of worshiping God, they worshiped other things. They took God's glory and they exchanged it for something else. We suppress the truth about God. The end result is we displace the real God with false gods. That's the case that the Apostle Paul is making here. We exchange God's glory for lesser glories. And this passage, as well as the scripture from beginning to end, says God's response, part of his response, is anger. Part of his response is wrath. God's wrath is being revealed. And he says it's being revealed right now. It's unfolding right now before our eyes. Now, don't confuse God's wrath, his righteous anger, with the kind of anger that we feel most of the time, uh, which is an anger that is oftentimes disproportionate to the situation, uh, certainly almost always hypocritical to some degree, and, um, and oftentimes out of control. God's anger isn't like that. And as we look at how his anger is expressed, you're going to go, yeah, that's a measured form of God's wrath, but it is real wrath. And it's not just wrath and anger. It is judgment. It's, it's God's judgment, and it's already happening. God is already judging us. So we need the gospel journey because right now we are under judgment. We're under God's judgment. And the final judgment, and there will be a final judgment, the Bible says, will only seal the choices that we're making right now. It's going to seal those choices. The gospel journey back to God isn't about, it's not like, hey, you should become a Christian because it's going to make you happier and you're going to be able to reach your potential. There, there is some truth to that. Um, but really, the argument that Paul makes in Romans 1 through 4 for the gospel journey is you ought to get on the gospel journey because you will escape God's final judgment if you get on the gospel journey. God is angry because of the pain and destruction that our journey away from him brings into the world. That is what we have done. Now, in our story of God class that many of you, if not most of you, because hundreds of people have gone through this, that we offer uh, throughout the year, um, we spend almost the whole first week of six weeks to cover the whole Bible. We spend almost the first week, entire first week, on just the beginning chapters of Genesis. Um, why would we do that? We do that because... Um, because it, until you understand what our world was supposed to be, until you understand what we were supposed to be, what God called us to be, until you understand, that's the first two chapters of Genesis, until you understand the problem that we've created beginning in Genesis 3, we won't appreciate God's solution. And the rest of the Bible is about that solution. The whole rest of the Bible is about that solution. And so we have a very, very big problem, whether we recognize it or not, and God offers a beautiful, big, big solution to our problem.
But we need to admit, we have suppressed the truth about God, and that has had all kinds of implications. Secondly, we, we, God gives us what we want. Why do we find ourselves far away from God? We suppress the truth, and then God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. God's wrath, which is his judgment, or one dimension of his judgment, is even now being expressed by letting us have what we want. The world that we have is the world that we created. Every single one of us is culpable. Every single one of us has added to the brokenness of our world. That is what the scripture teaches. And this passage zeroes in and zeroes in with a recurring phrase. It kind of, it, it's also, it, it's like in biblical times, they didn't have bullet points, okay? Every time this phrase comes up, it's like a bullet point, all right? And he's going to bullet point this, bullet point, repeat the same thing. So look at verse 24. He says this, therefore, because of this suppression, therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Okay, therefore, God gave them over. It comes again in verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over. This time, he says, to shameful lust. Verse 28, furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. Third bullet point. We will look at those in just a, a few moments. God's wrath isn't about lashing out at us. It's about cutting us loose to pursue our desires, specifically desires that are apart from him. It's God cutting us loose. Don't misunderstand this. This is not just simply God going, okay, that's what you want. I'm just going to let you have it. This is a definitive act of judgment. That's how it's presented. It's an act of judgment. So to kind of get the picture of what I mean by that, I couldn't find the picture that kind of captured everything that I wanted. But this is, this is a flood scene, and you can see the waters are rough and crazy. But imagine with me a boat, a little boat, a dinghy, you know, right here in the water, tied with a rope to this this structure right here. The picture that the scripture gives us about this God handing us over is here's our desires, here's this, this, this flow of our world, of our hearts, of the way that we want to go, and God comes and he cuts the rope. It's an act of judgment. God cuts the rope. It's, it's active. That's the picture of God's wrath from this passage. How do we end up so far from God? We suppress the truth about God. Second, God gives us what we want. It's an act of judgment. Thirdly, we choose to break God's boundaries for human flourishing and for glorifying him. We choose. It's very active in here. The word exchange is used a couple of times. We take this and we do this instead. Okay, I'm going to give up God and I'm going to exchange God for an idol. I'm going to give up the boundaries that God has given me and I'm going to live in a different way. Fundamental to biblical worldview is the idea that God sets boundaries, and he sets boundaries for our own good and for his glory. In the scriptures, the boundaries that God gives us are always because he has created us and designed us and designed the world, and that is all baked into the world. And he says, to live in the world in the way that I created it, here are the rules since you've decided to go in your own direction. Here are the rules to live by. Here are the guidelines to live by. And, and then 
if you even step back a little further or a little higher, you look at this, what the reality is, is that those guidelines and that design and those boundaries reflect his character. So when God calls us not to be liars, it's because he's not a liar. When God calls us not to murder, it's because he is a God of love. And so it all emanates from, from him. So sin is disorder. God creates an ordered world. Sin is a disordering of that world. It's violating the principles that God has baked into his creation. So what does that look like? Here's the part of the sermon, you know, for some. Okay, so verse 24. Um, the, first, the, first, uh, the, the first thing it looks like is sexual impurity. So look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now sexual impurity in Scripture is... Um, is any kind of sexual behavior that is outside of the boundaries and purposes for sexual behavior. So God creates that, and it's a gift to us. But we take God's gift, and we apply it in ways that violate his boundaries. So the biblical boundary for that begins in Genesis 1. That's what Jesus refers to when he speaks to this. Um, the, or Genesis uh, 1 and 2. The biblical boundary for sexual behavior in Scripture is marriage between a man and a woman. It's a covenant, it's a commitment of marriage that's made before God and before each other and before the community, and it's binding. If it's broken, it has, there, there, there are, in a sense, penalties to be paid for it. It's not something that should be easily violated. Outside of marriage, the call in Scripture is celibacy. And it's not a secondary call. Jesus was celibate. Never, it was single and celibate all of his life. The Apostle Paul was single and celibate all of his life. So to break God's boundary is to degrade or dishonor the bodies that he's created for us. We're, we're not using, when we degrade, what we're doing is we're not using our bodies the way that God intended them. So in a... In a discussion that Paul is having with the Corinthian Christians because they are violating sexual boundaries and all that, and they think it's okay because they're spiritual beings and all this sort of thing. Paul says, no, no, that's not the biblical understanding of this. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? This is so important for the Corinthians to hear because they consider their bodies to be in, unimportant. And it's like, no, no, faith is embodied. It, it is embodied. And he says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is a deeply countercultural message in today's society. You all realize that, right? <laughs> deeply countercultural, but a very important matter of discipleship of what it means to follow Jesus. He is the Lord of not just our minds. He is the Lord of our bodies. The second result that Paul gives is shameful lust. So look at verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Um, 
Oh, we'll just stop there for a moment. So uh, another way, to, or, or the word lust is the, the Greek word that's behind it that Paul is using, is a word that in that language could be used in a positive way. It basically means desire. But when it is used in this kind of context, um, it becomes like our English word lust, which captures the idea of a desire, a strong desire, for something that is out of bounds. Um, like in the, in the Ten Commandments, when it says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's home. Okay, it's a strong desire for something that is not, it's not yours. It's not yours to have. And so it's out of bounds. It is a, in the scriptural worldview, it's a misplaced desire or a desire that's out of balance, a desire that's out of balance. But most of the time, it has to do with a desire that's misplaced. So God gives us over to our lust. This is the story of humanity. This is our story. This is about all of us, about all of humanity. So Paul offers two examples of how we have been handed over to dishonorable and shameful lusts, what it is that God gives us over for. Again, what he says here is not to elevate these. Uh, the scripture is a pretty uh, equal opportunity uh, offender of our, you know, where we want to have the boundaries. But here's, here's what it says in verse 26 and verse 27. He gives these examples. Speaking at the beginning of verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Here's two examples. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations because it's going back to creational order that Paul goes back to. Exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Again, he's not elevating those sins over other ones. Jesus is very, for example, Jesus says, listen, if a man lusts after a woman that he should not be having desire for, a misplaced strong desire, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, so this speaks to all kinds. These are just two examples. Now, we don't always like God's sexual boundaries, but too often we miss the reality that everyone has boundaries. Everyone has boundaries. Back a few years ago when uh, gay marriage was on the ballot or I think a referendum in Minnesota, a National Public Radio was airing a program on the vote that was going to be happening in Minnesota. And it had a gay marriage activist on the show who made a, a point that I went back to the website so that I could write it down. <laughs> and I had it in my, in my notes. But this is, this is what he said. He says, most people who are against gay marriage are not bigots. They have convictions. And it's not helpful when our side accuses all of them of being bigots for what they believe. Now, this was probably, what, seven years ago or something like that? Nobody can get away with saying that anymore on, a, on certain national stages. You just can't say that anymore. I mean... But even seven years ago, that would have been a risky thing to say. He is an activist. And I can almost guarantee you, anybody who was listening to him that cared about what he was an activist for or were also activists were not happy that he said something like that. 
It was risky. It was charitable for him to say that about people who oppose his activism. And when I heard it, I thought, if only we as Christians could be consistent in being that charitable and taking that kind of risk with people who disagree with us. The reality is everyone has boundaries, but we don't always agree where those boundaries are. And just because someone doesn't agree with your boundaries, you don't have to dehumanize them, demonize them, or turn them into a moral monster in order to disagree. Now, that's, that's a hard nuance for uh, people to take these days, but that is a biblical nuance. That is what we are called to in our lives. All right. Secondly, uh, what did he give us up to? Depraved minds. That was a result. So uh, look at verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. All right. So depraved mind leading to doing things that we should not be doing. So what kinds of things? Listen to what he says are the things that we should not be doing that our depraved minds take us to. Verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do these things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I don't know if you caught it, but there's no one here in this room that escapes this list. Not a one of us that escapes this list. Paul is being relentless. He's driving a point home. He's driving that every single one of us, as he's going to say in chapter 3, all of us are sinners. All of us fall short of the glory of God. No one gets a pass on what he's saying in these verses. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Romans, makes another really interesting point. He says, he says, we oftentimes think that the problem is, is that we have these bodily desires and these bodily desires that we've got to get our brains in gear in order to stop the bodily desires. And, and that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying it begins with depraved minds and then our bodies follow. It begins with depraved minds and then our bodies follow. What are we going to do with this list? What are we going to do with everything that he said in here? I want to suggest four things to you real quickly. The first one is, hold this, what Paul has said here, hold this up as a mirror, not as ammo. Don't use it as ammo. Hold it up as a mirror, don't use it as ammo. Now, the Apostle Paul does something, remember we talked about in week one of this series that this letter of Paul to the Romans is not only inspired scripture, but is also just from an objective standpoint, looking at it, a literary masterpiece. This is one of those literary masterpiece pieces because Paul is setting up a knockout punch. You may have noticed, I kind of corrected myself one time when I was looking at the screen, you may have noticed that throughout this entire passage, Paul has been using they, them language. Just they, they do this, they do this, just terrible, they, they, they. The reality is he is setting us up. Because it would be easy, 
without slowing down like we did, to look at that list and go, it's not talking really about me. Kind of see it as a whole. You heard some words like murder and things like that, and you're like, oh, yeah, those people, they are, they are terrible, terrible people. So he goes through this whole list, and, and just imagine, okay, without stopping, they, 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 and they approve of, they not only practice things that they know deserve death, but they approve of other people. You, therefore, have no excuse. Those are his very next words. <laughs> what? <laughs> you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Why? Because you're a judgmental person? No. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. This list, for those of you who felt good about it, it was about you. It was about you. Just in case you missed it. Verse 3. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do the same things, there it is again, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Now, next week, we're going we're to see the point that he's trying to make in there, and it's just kind of pulling us in in what he's trying to do there. But go to chapter 3, because this is what it's all leading to. In chapter 3, about halfway through verse 22, um, he's bringing this whole argument to a close, and he says, um, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, and this has to do with the the context right before this, but he says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. In other words, we all need the gospel journey because all of us have been going in a different direction. He's been setting it up. No finger pointing aloud. He's saying, uh, no, they, them. This is a mirror. Don't use it as ammo against other people. Now, before he gets there, it is pretty easy to justify ourselves. It is, to look at that list. Like I said, some of those sins just seem really bad. And you pull them all together and you can say, that can't be describing me or my very nice neighbor or the people in my church. That's what you could walk away. So when you hear the really bad stuff, when you say, well, those, those really bad things, those are the things that those people do, those people who are not Christians, those people who hate Christians, those people who disagree with my theology or my politics, and we kind of lump them all, and it's all those people. They're horrible. Now, yes, I did notice that there were a few sins in there that I do commit, um, but obviously they're not things, I mean, right? I mean, Look, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus not only said lust is committing adultery, but he also said anger is murder. You're guilty of murder. Now, I don't care what anybody says. I'd rather you be angry at me than kill me, right? And I'd rather be angry to someone than kill them, okay? So obviously, there are some things in there that are just things I need to work on. But I'm not one of those horrible people. And uh, so Larry, Pastor Larry Osborne has done something really interesting with this list. He says, we have our red sins and we have our green sins, kind of like sins. And then, uh, you know, we got to really work on that. Uh, so the red sins, I've, I've capitalized the, um, the, the ones that are red. 
their women exchanged natural sexual relations. Their men abandoned. The uh, uh, same thing with for women uh, with women. And then uh, what else? Wickedness, evil, murder, God haters. That's it. Those are the red sins. Enough to cause you to go. That's not me. And then the green sins. Greed, envy, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, insolent, arrogant, boastful, disobedient to parents, no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. The green sense, the things I have to work on. Paul doesn't offer a ranking. He says all of this is disorder and is, has ruined God's world. It's part of a giving us over. It's, we're living under the judgment of the choices that we're making. So I've got a video here that'll play in the background. I want you to think of uh, what you don't see in this video is there's a big gigantic pane of glass and somebody has thrown a hammer at it and we're going to see as it begins. And so sin is like, like this hammer. It, you know, it impacts people around us, it impacts our own lives, and so it, it impacts us. But if you think of that whole pane of glass as being God's world, what actually winds up happening is these sins that we do, that we think, well, it's just one of the little ones, one of the green ones, actually the shock waves go out from that, and eventually, if you could see it from a higher perspective, because the thing's about six feet long, the entire pane of glass breaks. And that's the case that Paul is making. He'll especially drive it home in chapter 2. This is what happens whether it's a red sin or a green sin. Next week, I'm going to show you a different perspective as we continue. Those same lists, and I'm calling them the blue sins, all right, uh, in there. And it's an interesting perspective that, that is oftentimes missed as we look at that. So it's a little preview of what we're going to be doing next week. So Paul is leveling the playing field here in this passage. He's explaining why we need the gospel. He's explaining how it is that we got so far from God and how we, it is that we need the gospel journey to get back with God. Secondly, remember you are not alone or unredeemable. So every week we gather and every single week, every single one of us have sinned. Some of us sinned on the way in today. Some of us sinned when we sat down for worship. Some may have sinned while you were sitting there listening to the sermon. That's the reality. And it's all kinds of things. Um, people, our members, are, some are struggling with sexual desires for people of the same sex. Um, with pornography, with infidelity, with anger and rage, with gossiping and envy and hate and greed. We all struggle with broken desires, we all give in to temptations. With God's strength, we have many victories in Him, but we still have failures. And we're going to struggle in those ways for the rest of our lives. But understand this, you are not alone. If you're sitting there going, but my sin, God can't possibly forgive me. I am unredeemable. Listen, you're not that special. You're not. If, if God is thinking that way about you, he's thinking that way about me. 
And the person on your right and the person on your left, he's thinking the same way about them. You are not unredeemable. You're not alone in your struggle. Number three, treat grace as an opportunity to grow, not as a license to sin. Paul's going to deal with this later because he's so strong on grace, he knows what people are thinking. Well, this means it's not a big deal? Yeah, sure, the red sins, no, but the, the green sins, not that big of a deal. He's going to forgive me anyways, and even some of the red sins, maybe he'll forgive those as well. It's not how it works. God, God has given us an opportunity uh, when we see these sins, an opportunity to repent, an opportunity for grace and redemption, and it's an opportunity we should be taking. Repentance should be a part of our everyday lives. We need grace, and grace isn't something that just makes us right with God. When we receive his grace, it is something that we need every single day of our lives. Every single one of us, without exception, experience brokenness and cross God's boundaries. And we are committed as a community, as a Christian community, a biblical community, to pursuing God's will by his power and by his grace in all areas of our lives. That's what we're seeking to do. The last thing that I think is really important to say is be prepared. <laughs> be prepared for serious pushback when you hold to a biblical view on God's boundaries. Be prepared for pressure to compromise your biblical values. Be prepared for a temptation that you will experience to twist and manipulate Scripture. Obviously, biblical teaching on sexuality does not fit with what our culture teaches about sexuality. Um, biblical teaching on LBGTQ plus issues is increasingly under fire in our world. We're being, in a sense, convicted in public opinion for simply believing what Jesus taught and what the whole Bible taught and what Christians have believed for thousands of years. We're being convicted in public opinion. And the shots that are being taken at us aren't just shots from people in the world. They're within our own camp by professing Christians as well. Just to give you one little tiny sliver of an example, there are uh, books, articles, uh, people, pastors, denominations that will take this passage from Paul and what he says in here, and they'll say, you know, what actually Paul is talking about, if you look at the Greek terms, what he's talking about is he's talking about man-boy relationships. And the reality is, I don't know if they know this or not, but that has not passed. That interpretation was put out there several years ago, and it has not passed muster uh, of scholarly review. People who understand the culture, the language, it, it just doesn't pass muster in scholarly review. It doesn't. It is not a viable position. It's only made viable because a miss, bad information just keeps being repeated and repeated and repeated until people think that it's true, that that must be true. It's not true. So years ago, I was hearing on on Facebook, uh, not Facebook, on YouTube, a debate, I was watching a debate between a Christian celebrity pastor and a British pastor, a British pastor that I really highly, highly respect as a pastor scholar. And they were having a conversation on Christian sexuality issues, and they were having a very civil and respectful conversation. The celebrity pastor had changed his position away from the uh, the 2,000-year the history of the church's understanding of what the whole Bible says from beginning to end on sexuality. 
And he had changed his position, and at one point in the argument, he was making the man-boy argument for Romans 1. And the other pastor, who was a pastor-scholar, actually a, a much more of a scholar than this other guy. I mean, he's got a PhD in biblical studies and all kinds of stuff. He goes, you know, actually, that's not a viable interpretation of that passage, and here's why. And he gave all the reasons why, but then he said something. It was very simple, but it was decisive. He just looked at him, and he said, are you... Do you really believe that Paul would be okay with sex between two men or two women? That he would actually be okay with that, honestly? Do, do you believe that? And my interpretation of celebrity pastor's face, it was a look of shock. Like, I don't really have an answer to that question because it would destroy my entire position. Because there is no way, there is no way anybody can honestly read the Bible from beginning to end and say, oh yeah, Paul would have been okay with that. Because he wouldn't. He wouldn't be okay with, with sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. He would not be okay with that. So here's why I'm focused on this right now as I close this sermon. It's actually not necessarily evil, but it is sloppy, even lazy thinking among certain leaders that should know better if they don't know better to keep twisting what the Scripture says in order to justify their position. It's lazy thinking, sloppy. If they don't know this, then it's kind of sloppy. Um, I believe it comes from personally, most of the time, comes from a, a pretty pure heart. Uh, uh, having watched how uh, believers treat and talk about LBGTQ issues, how they treat people who identify that way throughout history, it should break our hearts. It really should. Our arrogance and self-righteousness, I want us to plant ourselves here for a moment, should be roundly condemned. The response is not change our position. The response that Scripture calls for is repentance for the hate and the vitriol and the self-righteousness that we've pointed towards people who disagree with us on this and who live differently than us on this. It should break our hearts. It should be a conviction of every Christian, a sorrow in our hearts that this is so. But ultimately, it would be cruel. It would be cruel. Whatever our motives are involved, it would be cruel to affirm and encourage sinful action. Something that the Bible says is wrong. Even if I'm struggling with something this Bible says is wrong, I'm going to trust what the Bible says instead of my take on that subject. And I can't help but think of the end of Romans 1 where it says, although they, knew, they know God's righteous degree, they know God's righteous degree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. It's, it ends up being cruel and irresponsible. I honestly consider interpretations of the Bible like that to be akin to those who used the Bible and twisted the Bible in order to justify breaking into, breaking through police lines, breaking windows, causing injury to get into, to break the law, to get into the uh, into the capital, and then quote scripture 
to justify it. It's kind of along the same lines. So please, I want to leave you with this, and uh, this, what I'm going to read right here is actually in the outlines on question number seven, so don't try to write this down. (laughs) The pressure to cave on biblical values or to manipulate Scripture is everywhere around us, even among our fellow believers and even within ourselves. Within ourselves, there's a pressure to cave, to manipulate Scripture. There is pressure to justify cohabitation for the sake of saving money. There's pressure to justify slander and malice in politics in order to make a point or win a very important victory. I mean, life is on the line, folks. So you got to slander. There's pressure to justify putting ourselves first in our relationships. Why? God wants me to reach my potential. Pressure to justify greed and hoarding because I need financial security versus stewarding our money for the sake of God and His kingdom. Pressure to justify being uncritically partisan in politics. I'm not going to criticize my side because my side has to win. I don't want to weaken my side. Pressure to justify bowing to the dictates of current social justice theories or Pressure to be silent on biblical social justice and the sin of racism. There's even pressure by some Christians to justify taking an unborn life because of the hardships that that life may have to experience or because of the difficulties and hardships of of, um, bringing a baby to term. So... What should be our response? We need a more resilient faith for this pressure. We need a discipleship that won't bow or break, won't bow or break under the pressure and that will take the gospel, continue to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, continue to live sacrificially by doing justice and compassion and continue living for the glory of God in every arena of life. He is Lord of every arena of life. Let's um, begin our response to God together here. As we do every week, we, we begin our response from the scriptures while we're together. We're called to live sacrificially because that's how God, God was not only angry at us, you understand, God's wrath, by the time we get to chapter three of Romans, the point is going to be made that God God's wrath came down on Jesus on the cross for our sakes. If you know the Bible story, you know there's a point where God says to Abraham in in a roundabout way, but he says, listen, if you fail to keep this covenant, I will be torn to pieces because of your failure. That's the love, the sacrificial love of God. Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. It's in your place. Let's eat together. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, which is shed for remission of your sins. Father, we thank you for this unbelievable love. A love that is sacrificial. 
that you would express your own anger and judgment upon yourself and take our penalty upon yourself to take our sin to Jesus you would take our sin to the cross help us to live in that reality help us to be people who point other people to that and help us to do it in a way that is loving and caring even with people with whom we disagree people who may even we feel are threatening our way of life help me to help us to be full of love and to respond in love we pray this in Jesus name amen